You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to lecture number five in our series on the theology of the Old Testament. I'm Father Kenneth Baker, editor of the Homiletic and Pastoral Review. In this fifth lecture, we're going to take the final books, which are considered historical books in the Old Testament, the book of Judith, the book of Esther, and the two books of Maccabees, one and two Maccabees. The first book we'll consider today is the book of Judith, and this book was probably written around the year 100, approximately. It's like a romance story of this woman, Judith, which means Jewess, who helped save the city and save Israel against the attack of the Assyrians during the time of the Assyrian occupation of Israel. One of the themes of the book of Judith is that God works mysteriously in history through the agency of human beings, both good and bad. The example of Judith teaches us that trust in God, piety, prayer, worship of God, and obedience to His commandments results in divine protection and salvation from one's enemies, no matter how powerful they might seem to be according to the judgment of the world. Now, as all the historical books of the Old Testament, this one is situated in a historical time of the Assyrians under the emperor Nebuchadnezzar, who is on the process of trying to conquer Palestine. And he sends his general, Holofernes is his name, with a large number of troops. He has 120,000 soldiers and 12,000 cavalry. He sends them to the west in order to besiege a city named Bethulia. They capture the water supply, but before they capture the city, one of his advisors named Achior tells him that he'll never be able to conquer the city of Bethulia unless the Israelites abandon their religion and turn against their religion. Otherwise, God is on their side and they will not be able to defeat him. So Holofernes considers this as treason and he bans this man away from the camp and he sends him off to Bethulia and he says, you go and stay there with the idea that he'll be eliminated and destroyed when they conquer the city of Bethulia. Now, the history of this doesn't square with the history we know, so there's probably a certain amount, like a parable perhaps, in this particular story. There's no record of any town by the name of Bethulia or this particular expedition of the Assyrians against this particular town. But however that may be, the point is centers around this woman, Judith, who is a pious Jewish widow. And the leaders of the town want to surrender to the Assyrians. But this woman stands up and says, no way, we won't do that. He says, let's call upon the Lord God and ask for his assistance and he will deliver us. Now this woman is young, she's a widow, but she's a young widow, she's very beautiful. She goes, she prays to the Lord and she gets herself up in all her finery and all her jewelry and so forth. And she goes to the camp with gifts for the general, Holofernes. 
And so Holofernes is very much attracted by her. She brings him these various gifts and she wants to have a banquet for him. This goes on for a number of days and at nighttime she asks permission from the soldiers to go outside the camp and pray to their god. So she and her servant, they go out every night to the camp and then they come back. Eventually she puts on this big dinner for Holofernes and as happens in situations like that, the poor man drank too much wine and he went into a slumber. He fell completely asleep. So Judith takes the sword of his. It's like David killing Goliath. She takes his sword and cuts off his head. You know, he's the general of this army of 120,000 people and 12,000 cavalry. So she takes the head, wraps it up in a cloth, and she and her handmaid go out again from the camp as they did every night, like they're going to go to pray. But they don't go just outside the camp. They go back to Bethulia and they show the head of Holofernes to the leaders there and they're enthusiastic about this. They receive extra strength. They realize that the general of the enemy has been executed and so they rush out of the city. They attack the Assyrians. They look for their general. He's not there. They find his dead body. They're in array and so on that attack. The Jews kill all kinds of the Assyrians and completely defeat them and send them on their way back to Assyria. So what we have here is a conflict between the faith of Judith and the pagans who attacked the country had no concern about Yahweh or the God of the Israelites. So one of the questions comes out in this book is, who is the true God and which God created the world and rules history? So the point of the book of Judith is that the God of Israel is the true God and he protects those who recognize and worship him such as Judith and the people of her town. But the call of Nebuchadnezzar, that is the idols and false gods of the Assyrians, like the later cult of the Caesars in Rome, represents the recurring heresy of the human race to worship man rather than God. So what saves Bethulia in this particular case, Jerusalem and all Israel from the Assyrians is the faith, the prayer, and the obedience to the law of this young, beautiful widow by the name of Judith. So she trusts completely in the Lord. She makes use of her beauty and her feminine charms and her wisdom to defeat the mighty Holofernes and his Gentile army. So this is a very interesting story of the triumph of the faith of the faithful Jewish woman over the pagans that were trying to destroy them. And in the context of the whole Bible then, Judith is a type of the Blessed Virgin Mary. As a model of faith, she foreshadows Mary insofar as she submits herself to the will of God for the sake of her people. And she's also a model of true Judaism, just as Mary is a model for the church. It's a very interesting book to read and from this perspective to understand what the theological ideas are that animate the book. The next book of the Bible after that is somewhat similar. It's the book of Esther. Now, the book of Esther, it's composed of two parts. There's has 16 chapters. The first 10 chapters were written in Hebrew, and they're in the Hebrew Bible. That was written probably around the year 400 before Christ. But then later on, another six chapters were added to give more details to the story, probably added around the year 125. The main theme of the book of Esther 
is the providence of God who watches over his chosen people and saves them from annihilation through two human agents, that is, Queen Esther and her cousin, who is also her foster father, Mordecai. So it's Esther and Mordecai. And the purpose of the book seems to be to give an explanation based on God's intervention in history on behalf of his people for the Jewish feast of Purim. That's one of the feasts that occurs every year in the Jewish calendar. And a secondary theme of this book is the superiority of the wisdom of Israel over the Gentiles. And it also is a lesson on how Jewish believers should conduct themselves when they live in a pagan and often hostile culture. The story briefly goes like this, that the emperor, he's disappointed with his wife. He asks her to appear in court and she refuses to appear in court in Babylon. So he banishes her and he has his courtiers over search the empire for beautiful girls for one who could become his queen. In the process, this Jewish girl, whose name is Hadassah, is brought into his harem and made beautiful and so forth. And eventually he chooses her. He's attracted by her beauty and her wisdom, which is given to her by God to become his queen. She has a relative named Mordecai, who is her cousin and foster father. Her parents had died. And Mordecai hears that some of the members of the court are planning to kill the king, assassinate the king. She tells Esther this, and Esther makes it known to the king. He executes these people, but he doesn't do anything much for Mordecai as a reward. Now, the top man, number two man in the empire, is a man named Haman. Haman. And he goes around, he wants everybody to bow and scrape before him when he comes by. But there's one person who refuses to do that, and that's the Jew Mordecai. So Haman hates Mordecai, and he finds out that he's a member of the Jewish race. So he sets out plots to destroy not only Mordecai, but all the Jewish people in the whole empire. So he goes to the uh, emperor, and he gets the emperor to sign a decree that on a certain day, all of the Jews in the empire, in the 127 provinces, will be executed. Mordecai finds out about this, and so he calls Esther and says, look, you've got to do something about this, otherwise we're all going to be destroyed, and you won't be saved either. But she says, if I go to the king, and he doesn't invite me, and he doesn't stretch out his golden scepter, I'll be executed, because nobody can enter into the presence of the king without being invited. And so Mordecai says, you have to do this in order to save your people. If you perish, we all perish. So she says, well, pray for me. And for three days, she fasts in sackcloth and ashes. And after that, she takes a bath and she puts on her perfumes and beautiful clothes and so forth. She goes to the king. The king extends the scepter and he's delighted to see her. And he says, what do you want? And she wants him to come to a banquet. So he comes to a banquet and she invites also Haman to this banquet. And at the banquet, eventually, she speaks to the emperor and mentions that there's somebody in the empire that's setting out to destroy her and all the Jewish people. And in the meantime, this Haman had had a big scaffold built on which he planned to hang Mordecai when the decree was signed. So the emperor says to Esther, well, who is this that's plotting to kill you and all the Jews? And she says, this man, Haman. At that, the emperor is very disturbed. He goes out and walks in his garden. Then Haman throws himself at the feet of the queen and begs for his life. The king comes in and sees him with his arms around her feet and her legs, and he thinks this is indecent, so he condemns him to death. It turns out it's ironical that Haman then is hung 
on the scaffold that he had built for Mordecai. And as a result of this, then Mordecai is put in the place of Haman and replaces them. The Jewish people are saved and they're given permission to execute their enemies in the empire. And as a result of that, this is commemorated with the Feast of Purim, they're saved. So what we have here, again, is God's activity in history, working through secondary causes, both good causes, good and bad people, in order to save his people. It's something similar to the story of Joseph, who rose to be number two in Egypt under Pharaoh, as we saw in the first book, the book of Genesis. And it's also similar to Daniel, who uh, became very influential in the court. Uh, later on, we'll see that when we talk about the prophecy of Daniel. Now, in addition to the notion of divine providence in Esther, the book also instills the idea that prayer and fidelity to the Lord are efficacious. So we conclude from this, God will never abandon those who trust in him. He did not abandon Judith. He did not abandon Esther and Mordecai because they prayed and they trusted in him. And the book also offers advice to Jews anywhere in the world, and also to us Christians, about how they should conduct themselves when they live in the midst of a hostile and cultural environment. You know, it's kind of like a cultural war that we're involved in at the present time. The practical purpose of the book of Esther is to give a theological rationale based on salvation history for the Jewish feast of Purim. Now, there are no direct quotes of this book in the New Testament, but there may be an allusion to it in the words of King Herod to the young dancer Salome. You may recall when she danced and he was pleased and he offered her half of his kingdom because the king in Esther says the same thing to Esther. He says, I will give you anything you ask of me, even half of my kingdom. He was so pleased with her and all she asked was that he come to the banquet and have a meal with him so that she could point out to him that the injustice of Haman of wanting to execute all the Jews in the empire and to eliminate the Jewish race from the face of the earth. So this is a story about the efficacy of divine providence, again, in protecting his people. We're going to go on to the two books of Maccabees now. The last two historical books in the Old Testament are the books of Maccabees, one and two Maccabees. Now there are certain books that are called deuterocanonical that are in the Catholic Bible that are not in the Protestant Bible. One and two Maccabees are two of those books. Also, you have the book of Judith, the book of Tobit, the book of Wisdom. Those books are not in the Protestant Bible. They're not in the Hebrew Bible, but they are in the Catholic Bible. They are considered canonical and God's word in the Catholic tradition. And the last two books that deal with historical events of the survival of the Jewish people it's in the second century, from about 180 down to approximately 134, 130. So you're talking about 50 years in the middle of the second century before Christ. This particular book, the first book of Maccabees, has 16 chapters in it and was probably written around the year 100 before Christ. The theme of the book is that God was with Mattathias. Mattathias, they're called the Maccabees, which means hammer. He was the father of this family, and he had three sons. And his sons, in their struggles 
to liberate Israel from foreign Greek occupation. So they were occupied by the Hellenists, the Greeks at this time, 180 down to 134. And the Greeks wanted to force them to be involved in Greek worship, to have gymnasiums and things like that. It was a culture war. And these people resisted it. They wanted to continue practice their Jewish religion. They were led by Mattathias and his three sons. So on a given day, one of the officials of the Greeks came and tried to force these people to burn incense to their emperor and to be involved in idol worship. And one Jewish fellow went up to do this and Mattathias took his sword, went up and executed him and they killed the Greeks and then he and his sons and their followers, they went off into the mountains to engage in guerrilla warfare against the Greeks. Now this is the result, one of the consequences of Alexander the Great in the fourth century, as you know, conquered the whole world. When he died, his empire was divided into three parts. And one part of it was one of his generals, Seleucus, he's the one who got the area of Syria and Palestine. And one of his descendants was Antiochus and Epiphanes IV. He became king in the year 175. And he tried to eliminate the Jewish religion and bring in basically the Greek religion. That's what this is all about. It's a religious battle. So Mattathias is a leader. He refuses to submit to that, this Hellenization or Hellenism that they tried to force on them. So they went in the mountains to exercise guerrilla warfare against the Greeks. And this went on, they had much success. Mattathias, eventually he was killed. His son, next one, was Judas. Judas Maccabeus, he was a great warrior for many years. And he defeated the Greeks time after time again with very small army. And they attribute this to the fact that God was on their side. They prayed, they were faithful to the covenant, they observed all the laws, they observed the Sabbath and so forth. And because of that, God rewarded them and gave them victory over their enemies. So this is a kind of a religious history of what took place during this time in the second century. The dominant idea running through the story is that God is the master of history. We've seen this before in the historical books in the Old Testament. It's in all of the historical books of the Old Testament. God is the master of history. It's not outside of his control, but he doesn't interfere exteriorly. He makes use of secondary causes and human beings in order to accomplish his will. So in the present case, he works through the family of Mattathias and his three sons, Judas, Jonathan, and Simon. They are successful, the author tells us, in defeating the Hellenizers or the pagans because they're faithful to the covenant and they're faithful to the law of Moses. And this law of Deuteronomy is operative here. That is, those who are faithful to the law will be rewarded and those who violate the law will be punished. The Maccabees fought for purity of the temple worship. The Hellenists tried to force them to worship perhaps statues of Caesar or somebody like that in the temple. And they resisted that. They finally captured the temple and purified it of all pagan influences and returned it to the proper worship as mandated by Moses. So once again, as I mentioned before in this series, the temple is extremely important all the way through from beginning with the tent in the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus down through David and Solomon and the kings. Here again, the temple is central because that's where God is, and that's where God manifests himself 
to the people of Israel. He's with them in a very special way in his temple. So the Maccabees are extremely concerned that there be no violation of the Jewish tradition, the Jewish law of worship as that takes place in the temple. So this has to do then with the development of Jewish history, the first book of Maccabees, from around the year 180 down to year 134. In 134, then the grandson of Mattathias, whose name is John Hyrcanus I, he's the successor to the Maccabees, and he's the one then it begins a period of peace of about 30 years from 134 down to around the year 100. Also, they're called Hasmoneans. These books also are a part of apology of how it came about that this family of Maccabees became the kings over the Israelites rather than somebody from the family of David because the family of David, according to the promise of God, is supposed to be the kings, and they're not. It's actually a different family. They achieved this because of their valor in the war and fighting against the Greeks. Now, the last historical book is the second book of Maccabees, which was probably written around the year 120 before Christ. And this book goes back over material covered in 1 Maccabees, but it covers only like the first 20 years from 180 to 160. It doesn't cover the whole thing, just the first part of the rebellion of Mattathias and Judas against the Hellenizers and against the Greeks. And once again, this book reveals a God who cares for the Jewish people by rewarding those who are faithful to the covenant and by punishing evildoers. He has a great regard for the temple and temple worship and for fidelity to the Torah or law of the Jews. And also, in a certain sense, this also is a story of God's divine providence guiding and protecting his faithful Jewish people when they're attacked by the pagan Hellenizers. So this begins then around the year 180 when the, there's an attempt to force the Jews to get involved with false worship. There's a couple letters at the beginning that deal with the Jewish feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights, and there are a couple letters to the Jews down in Alexandria that they are to celebrate this Feast of Lights, which is called Hanukkah, which the Jewish people still celebrate around the time of Christmas, the time that we Christians celebrate Christmas. It explains the origins of that feast of Hanukkah, which is called the Feast of Lights. And this book has three main parts. The first part is the story about the miraculous conversion of Heliodorus in the temple. He was a non-believer who ridiculed the Jews, who finally came around and became a convert. Secondly, the desecration of the temple by the Hellenists and its rededication by Judas Maccabeus during the reign of Antiochus IV. They defeated the Greeks and they captured the temple in Jerusalem and were able to restore it. And the final military campaigns during the reign of Antiochus IV. Judas is a great hero. Now, in this book, the author deals explicitly with God's intervention in history in order to both discipline his people Israel and to protect them from their enemies. Again, the temple predominates here in this book, and there's an emphasis in chapter 7 of the martyrology where this woman's seven children are put to death cruelly by the pagans because they refuse to be involved in pagan worship. She urges them on to endure suffering, and she also is killed. You have explicit belief in the resurrection of the dead. For those who are just in this life, 
and are persecuted and put to death, and they're not rewarded in this life, they're going to be rewarded in the next life through resurrection of the body. Here we have a very explicit recognition of faith in the resurrection of the body, that God will reward his faithful people in the next life. So once again, we have this theme that God rewards the faithful and he punishes those who are wicked. And the author here also supports the Torah, that is the law of God and the temple. Now, a number of other things that are in this book that are important, in addition to the resurrection, there's a belief that the living can help the dead by their prayers, that is the power of intercession, that God alone created the world by producing it from nothing, and the belief in intercessory prayer on the part of the saints. Here we have that in chapter 12, which we always quote this passage on November the 2nd for All Souls Day, that these soldiers who died, Judas took up a collection and got 2,000 drachmas and he sent them to the temple so that sacrifices could be made for the repose of the souls of these soldiers who had died, and they all had some kind of charms on them that they should not have had as faithful Jews, and so they were guilty of some sins, and these prayers would be used then in order to beseech God to have mercy on these people who had died as soldiers and fighting for Israel. So there you have the conclusion of the two books of Maccabees, which cover from the period from 180 down to 134. It's a culture war in which these great warriors, the Maccabees, fight against the enemies of Israel and are triumphant because they're faithful to God and they're faithful to the true worship that should take place in the temple in Israel. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.